You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. President Obama's NASA budget has dashed hopes for returning to the moon by 2020. It cancels the Constellation program, started under President Bush, a program hampered by technical problems and budget shortfalls. Fly me to the moon. As it was, said the head of NASA, Charles Bolden, the existing program wouldn't fly astronauts to the moon until at least 2028. Under the new plan, NASA will be out of the rocket business, private companies will be in it, and the agency's focus will turn to robotic missions, laboratory science, and observation of Earth. But despite the cuts in the moon program, the NASA budget overall gets a boost. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. This is Are We Alone? Is this a giant leap backwards for U.S. space exploration or a healthy corrective to the Bush plan? First, an overview of this NASA restructuring. Phil Chapman was an Apollo astronaut for five years beginning in 1967. He's now an energy and astronautics consultant. Phil, let's look at the highlights from the Obama administration's proposal for the future of NASA. What do you think the president would like to see NASA doing by the end of, say, his first term? I think he would like to see a thriving commercial launch industry capable of launching people into low Earth orbit and supporting the space station. In the human spaceflight program, I think that's what his, his main stated objective is. In the unmanned program, I expect to see it continue, and I hope it will increase somewhat. Nobody argues about the value of the unmanned program. I think everybody agrees that the the little rovers on Mars are wonderful. In actuality, of course, there's going to be a dogfight in Congress over the budget because what he's doing in cutting off the Project Constellation, the return to the moon, and in redirecting NASA is he's changing the employment structure in the various NASA centers, and the congressmen from those districts are all going to be fighting to retain their their jobs in their area. So we're not going to the moon? Not in any uh, planned future. As a goal, we're certainly going to the moon. But when we're going there, I wouldn't hold your breath. Okay, so we're not going back to the moon soon, and he's going to sort of privatize the transport part of space activity? I think that's the main intent, and I'm, I think it's a wonderful thing to do. The main thing we need to do in space is to get it cheaper to get into space. And if we can, in fact, between now and 2020, produce a commercial launch system which is much, much cheaper than the, the current one, then we can uh, go back to the moon at a much lower cost and make it much more feasible to do it. Well, the, the, the statement by Obama 
was uh, to change the direction of what was originally a Bush administration program. Did you see this any sort of political retaliation, or are there simply practical arguments for canceling the moon mission? The moon mission was didn't have enough funding, uh, nor did it have the right sort of planning, so that it was not actually going anywhere. We were not going to get back to the moon by 2020. The earliest date that was now being talked about was 2028, and it was receding faster than time was going by. So I, I don't think it was actually going anywhere. So, okay, so this, this is, hands down, this is the right move. It's terribly uh, difficult for NASA, in particular for Johnson Space Center, because they're about to lose the shuttle. It's about to, the shuttle is coming to the end of its life. They've just lost Constellation, the return to the moon. That leaves them only with the International Space Station as their only serious program. So something like two-thirds of their budget is going to go away. Moreover, there are, I think, 88 astronauts in the office at the moment. And uh, if they're flying with the Russians up to the space station or with uh, a private commercial launch vehicle up to the space station, it means that the pilots will not be NASA astronauts. The NASA astronauts will be, if they're lucky, get one seat on every mission to the space station. That means that out of the 88 astronauts there now, only maybe 10 of them have a chance of getting into space during the next decade. So it's going to be a difficult transition for them. It sounds like uh, wanting to be an astronaut, which is something that I know a lot of people wanted to do, including myself, I might say. It's not a good career aspiration uh, these days. Uh, you know, NASA's walking away. You mentioned that they're canceling this big rocket program that was known as Constellation that was to be used to go back to the moon. This is like a $10 billion sunken investment they're walking away from. I thought it was a bad idea when it was first proposed because I didn't think it had sufficient motivation. I didn't think it was going to arouse the kind of popular and political support it needed to actually happen. So this change in direction advocated by President Obama, is uh, essentially saying, you know, we're going to put the brakes on manned spacecraft. We're going to put the brakes on putting humans into space, at least for a while. At least for a while. He uh, is not saying that we should abandon human spaceflight. It's also uh, really possible that we'll see in the next few years competition from other nations, particularly China. If China begins to run its own human spaceflight program, then we may see the motivation for American human spaceflight go up considerably, going back towards the way it was back during the Cold War. But the trend in the past 10, 20 years has been toward cooperation in space, not competition. I think cooperation is an interesting and ideal, but it is not uh, not the best motivation for getting money out of the Congress. Competition is much more effective in getting the Congress to put up the money. So maybe what NASA ought to do is send all the plans for Constellation to the Chinese. I think NASA, one of NASA's mistakes was that they wasted a perfectly good Cold War and didn't get as much done as they could have while the, the Russian motivation was there. What do you think of putting humans in space in general? aside from these uh, you know, specific uh, changes in policy. What is the purpose of the human spaceflight program? And the purpose clearly is to make at least the inner solar system part of the domain of mankind. And that means people, getting people out there. It's like asking uh, the people in the Mayflower, what's the purpose of America? But President Obama still talks about going to Mars. I mean, uh, maybe that's uh, down, you know, uh, beyond the horizon, but the red planet is still... Uh it's still alive, so to speak. It's very easy to presidents to talk about ambitious programs beyond their watch after they are no longer president. It doesn't cost them anything. NASA is going to be receiving a small boost in funding yes. next year. Uh, where will that go? I think a lot of it is going to, I hope, is going to go into developing the technologies we need to make 
commercial space flight more practical. In particular, we need a reusable launch vehicle instead of throwaway ones. It's difficult to get the price down when, when on every flight you throw away the, the vehicle. So that's one of the things I hope they'll be pursuing. And we do need to have government support at the technology level to make these things happen. The same way that back in the early days of aeronautics, the National Advisory Committee on Aeronautics provided a lot of the technology which eventually led to commercial airplanes. Phil Chapman, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Phil Chapman was the first Australian-born astronaut. He was the Apollo 14 mission scientist and is now a consultant on energy and astronautics. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Four minutes, the time it takes to cook a soft-boiled egg. For a slow Olympic athlete to run a mile. To use your electric toothbrush twice. Four minutes is also the time you could spend looking down on Earth from space, if all goes according to Bert Rutan's plan. This is Bert Rutan. I'm an airplane and, more recently, spaceship designer and developer. Bert Rutan is in the private space travel business. He's recently partnered with Richard Branson's company, Virgin Galactic, to send the public, yep, ordinary folk like you and me, into space on his new vehicle, Spaceship Two, for, well, right now, $200,000. But the price will come down because of market competition. Competition among entrepreneurs providing trips into space. Competition that has been missing from the government space program and whose lack has stifled innovation, according to Bert Rutan. And he knows a thing or two about innovation. Bert Rutan is an engineer known for his development of strong, light, and efficient aircraft. In 40 years, he has overseen the design of 40 novel flying machines. That's one a year. He designed the record-breaking Voyager, the first aircraft to travel around the world without stopping. In 2004, his spacecraft, Spaceship One, won the $10 million X Prize. But the money wasn't his crowning achievement. That honor went to being the first to send a privately funded vehicle into space twice. And Rutan's business may get a boost from Obama's nod to commercial space travel. Bert Rutan's Spaceship Two continues to be tested and is nearing its launch date, perhaps in the next two years. Okay, Bert, I'm a space tourist. I bought my ticket for a trip into space. I pick up my ticket from Virgin Galactic. Then what? What you would do with them is go through about three days of training, uh, which would include flying parabolas, uh, weightless parabolas in the launch airplane, and would include also riding in in the launch airplane while it pulled a lot of G's, so it simulates for you the reentry profile. So you would go through this training to, to be able to handle the forces you're going to experience at liftoff. Now, now th- does this thing take off vertically and, and go well, into... Not, o- not just liftoff. It would give you the weightless experience. It would give you the reentry G buildup. And so the most energetic part of the flight, except for the rocket boost, is simulated perfectly. Okay, so that presumably adjusts you physiologically. I don't know if it adjusts you psychologically. Let me just get something straight here. When this thing takes off, now, is it going to put you into orbit, or is it just going to... Oh, no, no. It's going to take you up into... It it has very little uh, 
orbital velocity to give you that centripetal force that provides long-term weightless. What it does is it goes primarily vertical, and it goes out of the atmosphere long enough so that you have about four minutes of zero-g and about five or six minutes of black sky. So it's a very energetic ride, even compared to the space shuttle, in that it's a more energetic boost and a more energetic high deceleration reentry. But uh, you have only four minutes in which you're outside the chair floating around and going from window to window to, to see the, uh, the black sky and the atmosphere line. And you know, the view looks very much like from orbit, but it's a very quick experience. Okay, so it's taking you into space, which I believe begins 100 kilometers up, say 61, 63, 65 miles up. But didn't Spaceship One also do this? I mean, how does Spaceship Two differ from Spaceship One, other than maybe better amenities? It's much larger, for one. Spaceship Two, you're strapped into uh, a relatively small capsule, and it would give you the view out the window, but would not give you the opportunity to leave your seat and float around. All right, and how, how many people would Spaceship Two take up at a time? How many tourists could uh, you accommodate? The space lines are generally going to be flying at eight place. So you have six ticket-paying passengers and two crew. Uh, well, I have to ask you, as a potential tourist, because I would love to go into space, even if it's only four minutes. I mean, this is a trip up and then a trip back down. We're not talking about going into orbit. We're not going to be visiting a space hotel or anything like that. What's it going to cost me? Well... Let me just point out that our goal for the direct operating cost per seat of one of these flights is very low compared to the initial ticket price. And I think like airlines, when they started, they were extremely expensive and only available to the very rich. And then, of course, with a lot of maturity, the cost came way down. And with volume, the costs come way down. And, the, and it's more a public access Thing. I, I don't think that a $200,000 ticket is really public access now. What, what is the argument, Bert, for having you guys, the private sector, do this to get into the spaceflight biz? Well, certainly the hope is that the private sector will have breakthroughs and try new stuff so that we can then reduce the cost and increase the safety of going to orbit. Can I follow up on that a little bit? Because it's sometimes said that the usual analogy, which is made to aviation, where that was taken over by the private sector, and they did very well. Airline travel is... No, it wasn't taken over. The, the government never developed an airliner and never ran an airline. But, but they did In subsidize space, it. The it, government has developed all of the space liners and ran all the space lines since 1962. The government has had the responsibility and the activity of all of that. Uh, That didn't happen with airlines. Those were uh, developed privately, and those were for-profit, and those were competitive. And the fact that they were competitive, the one that could sell the lower-priced tickets and provide the safer flights, got all the business. Okay, well, I guess my point is, do you see that this analogy holds for spaceflight? Do you think uh, the, the analogy pro- holds for sure, but, the, the, but in order to copy what airliners did to get public access, they would have to have competition. It won't happen with orbital access, for example, by having only one company using the exact, almost exact government technology, all the same methods to go to orbit, because they're not trying 
to solve the problem. They're not looking for new solutions. They're merely copying what we were doing in the 60s. And that will not provide public access because it's too expensive and too dangerous. So what you're saying is that the government effort will, in fact, not be nearly as innovative. Is that No, I'm saying the commercial one has not, at least right now. Uh, there's no one working on new ideas. I'd like to see the government use taxpayer money for true research to go out and look at breakthrough methods that the commercial guys can use in order to have safer and lower cost access to space. The government program that was just canceled did not do that. The government's program of the Constellation was a development program, not a research program. So I don't support the taxpayer paying for a government development program, but I do support the taxpayer paying for a true research program and a forefront exploration program, because those two things will be our future The exploration will be the things that fires up the kids. And uh, if you can fire them up when they're they're in an age of 4 to 14, they are going to be the leaders in solving the problems for the future and to keep America in the forefront and to get to that big goal of having the resort hotel in orbit. So, Bert, the role of the private companies then becomes what? Oh, very clearly, the same as with airlines. The role of the private companies to develop spacecraft and to operate space lines is profit and growth and competitiveness. And that free market then drives them to optimize their service and optimize their product. So the role of private companies is going to be just the same as the development of the airliner. And they did a wonderful job then because middle class and even lower class people you find flying around on airliners. That problem was solved. That problem has not even been attacked at all in spacecraft. All right. Well, Bert Rutan, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. Bert Rutan is an aerospace engineer and the founder of the company Scaled Composites. He won the Anzari X Prize with his launch of Spaceship One. Another issue in the NASA budget restructuring is the role of humans versus machines in space exploration. Now, Bert Rattan wants at least some of those explorers to be human. What if we sent probes to Mount Everest and decided it was too dangerous for people to go there? But governments didn't spend hundreds of billions of dollars to send people up to the top of Mount Everest. Steve Weinberg says President Obama's emphasis of using robots rather than humans for space exploration is right on. Human passengers are expensive, and they're demanding. The rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, didn't insist on round-trip tickets to Mars. Under Obama's plan, we may still put a human on the red planet one day, says Dr. Weinberg. But right now, the focus should be on robotic probes and technological innovation on Earth. Dr. Weinberg won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1979, Today, he teaches at the University of Texas at Austin. He recently wrote an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal asking why send a human into space to do a robot's job. For example, satellites are launched by the shuttle when they could be much more cheaply launched by unmanned rockets. So if you take that into account, much more of the funding is going into manned spaceflight than into real science. Well, what about the 
issue of inspiration. I'm sure you get this question. The, the idea that it wouldn't have been the same if we had sent, you know, robots to climb Mount Everest. Isn't it the idea of going into space that might inspire children? The fact that uh, motorized skateboards on Mars, interesting, good science. But if you're talking to a 10 or 15-year-old, wouldn't they rather go to Mars themselves? I've never met a working scientist who was inspired by watching astronauts bouncing around on the moon. I think there is a certain excitement to it. Certainly, I was excited when Neil Armstrong first set foot on the moon. But that excitement wears off very rapidly. And in fact, the last two Apollo missions, uh, if I remember correctly, Apollo 18 and 19, that were supposed to be devoted specifically to science, were canceled because there just wasn't that much interest in them anymore. I think the public can be inspired by scientific discoveries. As NASA learned to their regret when the administrator of NASA tried to cancel the servicing of the Hubble telescope, there was quite a loud outcry from the public. They wanted the scientific information or perhaps just the beautiful pictures that Hubble was taking. I think there was a tremendous excitement over the rover's spirit and opportunity moving around Mars. All right. Well then, well, then let me play devil's advocate in another way. One of our goals in solar system exploration, and, and maybe one of the top goals, is to try and find out if there's life elsewhere in the solar system. So we have these robotic spacecraft sort of prowling around the rusty, dusty surface of, of Mars. But uh, I've heard geologists say, look, if you could get a person up there, if you could get a geologist on the surface of Mars, they could explore that planet at least 10 times faster than these robots. That sounds like it might be worth the additional cost. A person might be 10 times as effective as a robot, but he's also something between 100 and 1,000 times more expensive to get up there and get back. Uh, you don't have to get the robots back. And so that for the cost of having astronauts visit one site or one or two sites on Mars where they probably won't learn too much because the chances are against it at any one or two places, you could have robots visiting hundreds of places on Mars, and one of them might actually discover some sign of past life. I think it's much more likely that we'll discover something about the possibility of life on Mars with robots than we will with people. It may be that the rovers will discover something on Mars that will make it worthwhile to send people there. We'll discover something that really has to be explored by human beings, and then I'll be in favor of it. But the way we're going, to put all our money into sending people to just one or two places on the surface of Mars, at the cost, I think, of close to a trillion dollars, it's just a stunt. I'm talking with Dr. Steven Weinberg, a theoretical physicist at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Weinberg, let's, let's take some specific examples here. When President Bush announced his plans for the Moon to Mars program in 2004, it wasn't really all that long ago. It was followed immediately by a budget cut in unmanned astronomy research projects, astrobiology was cut, and so forth. What, what specific projects struck you that were canceled and, and makes you think that these two events were, were connected? Because, after all, that wasn't the idea. He was just proposing a new project. Right after the president announced his new vision for a return to the moon and on to Mars, two of the leading programs of fundamental astronomical research at NASA, one of them called Beyond Einstein and one of them called Explorer, were cut way back. 
it was announced that, for example, no new contract proposals would be entertained for the Explorer program, which is a program of medium cost. Can you tell us what it was intended to do? The idea of Explorer was that the astronomical community would be invited to make proposals for satellite observatories that they thought would be important. And then these would be allowed to compete with each other, and the few of the best would be chosen. And Explorer, right after the president's announcement, was cut, as far as new proposals are concerned, to zero. And the Office of Space Science of NASA announced that this is because these programs, Explorer and Beyond Einstein, do not clearly support the president's vision for space exploration. So they were crowded out for lack of funds. And, and beyond... Well, of course, it's for lack of funds. I have no objection to manned spaceflight for any other reason. I mean, it's awfully dangerous, but if people want to volunteer to do it, I admire their courage, and I, I wouldn't stand in their way. No, it's, it's the cost that makes all the difference. And Beyond Einstein, I believe, was also a very cool project, uh, allowing us to study something more about black holes and so forth. So, Yes, Beyond Einstein would have involved gravitational wave observatories that could detect gravitational waves from colliding black holes, a particular concept called LISA. And there were other proposals in the Beyond Einstein class. The only big NASA science project that has gone ahead is the James Webb Space Telescope, which will be launched by an unmanned rocket and is not designed to be serviced by astronauts. So the one excuse for the involvement of astronauts as having some importance in science that they did service the Hubble will no longer be true for the James Webb Space Telescope. Well, finally, Dr. Weinberg, would you change your attitude with regard to the balance between manned and unmanned spacecraft if you were to pick up the papers or at least open up your web browser if there are no papers uh, five years from now and find out that the Chinese had a crew on its way to the moon? As a patriotic American who cares about America's status in the world, I sincerely hope that the Chinese do spend their resources on manned spaceflight. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Dr. Weinberg, thank you so very much for talking to me today. Thank you. Steven Weinberg is a Nobel Prize-winning physicist who teaches at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also the author of a new collection of essays, Lake Views, The World, and the Universe. What is it you want, Mary? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Hey, that's a pretty good idea. Who has a lasso that long? I wonder if Mary would settle for a deed to some real estate on the moon. NASA may not set foot on regolith anytime soon, but Steve Durst still has his eye on the lunar prize, one of a few pioneers who's drawn to the untamed wilds of space and making a killer land deal. The editor of Space Age Publishing, a company that supports lunar commercial enterprises, such as the International Lunar Observatory, says he came into possession of a few acres of lunar real estate. Steve, you seem to own a part of the moon. Can you tell me about your property? Uh, well, Seth, I have four deeds here dating to 1971 specifying various acreages around the moon. Now, two of them were gifts and two of them were purchases at about a dollar an acre. Well, tell me, I mean, how much property are we talking about here? Is this a square inch? Is it a square mile? I mean, uh... well, 
the latest acquisition in the year 2000 was 1,778.58 acres for $15.99. That, that sounds relatively inexpensive, but my first question is, why such an odd number of acres? I don't know. I think the uh, businessman had his own arrangement and scheme. The fact is that I'm only interested and only need one acre of lunar surface. Well, but why is that, Steve? Well, that's basically about all I need for business or private residential needs, long range. Yeah, can I ask where it is? I mean, is it on the side of the moon facing the Earth? <laughs> oh, the, the, that 1778 piece? Yeah, yeah, your, your big spread, you know, well, the, 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 this, a, well, it's, the it's South 1778. Designated uh, Area H1 Quadrant Charlie, lot number 358, and the coordinates are latitude between 0, 4 degrees south, 60, 64 degrees west. But really, the question I have to ask you first, Steve, is you say you have four deeds to property right. on the moon. Two of them were given to you, and right. two of them you purchased. Uh, who was giving you these deeds? Who was selling you these deeds? Who has authority to do that? Well, there are a number uh, to this day, Seth, of startups or enterprises that, on the basis of intent, are selling property. Uh, partly tongue-in-cheek is novelty and partly is, as intent being more significant than nothing at all. And the latest deed comes that I mentioned, 1,778 acres from the Lunar Embassy. The uh, 1990 acquisition of 10 acres came from an outfit called Lunar Estates. I'm not sure that's still in business. The 1971 deed that was for one acre that was given to me was uh, issued by the, the Lunar Development Corporation. And I understand that that one-acre deed was purchased by a, a gal in a silver jumpsuit on Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley while we were walking on the moon back in the 70s. Well, having said that, n nothing against uh, silver jumpsuits, but I, <laughs> but do you believe any of these deeds is valid? Well, not, not unless one can uh, be present to further substantiate that claim. I guess I'm not a lawyer, but the, the old adage about possession is nine-tenths of the law, probably holds in terms of space development as well. Do you think that all it's going to take is squatter's rights? Do you think that if you can get to the moon, uh, and uh, presumably that's not an impossible dream, that uh, all you have to do is land there and, you know, stake out your claim and build a hut or whatever or something under the ground there, and it's yours? Well, I think that the first landers that arrive on a permanent basis, which will be in the next two or three years, Seth, will inevitably and automatically raise that question, perhaps deliberately as well as our mission will. You know, what's to prevent an individual putting one's initials or a mark on the bottom of that lander lake and claiming uh, the surface underneath it? Okay, what are you going to do with it, Steve? What are you going to do with this property? You say you're happy with just one acre. Now, let's, let's assume you get one acre, and somebody mm -hmm. says it's all okay, it's yours to develop. What are you going to do? The, the acre would be uh, hosting our scientific observatory, our ILO, so it would be some, some good scientific application. And as far as business is concerned, people ask me what kind of a business plan I'm operating with, and I say in the long run, just give me a bucket of moon rocks. And anybody who might object about unrestricted mining of the moon, we could certainly settle those fears by letting them know that that one, one bucket of moon rocks will come right out of my acre, so I shouldn't be uh, despoiling the the common domain. I think the uh, the market for moon rocks is going to be a huge market. And if I had a bucket of moon rocks, no matter how ugly or dirty they would be, I wouldn't have any other financial problems for a long time.
All right. Well, Steve Durst, thanks so much for talking to me about uh, you know, your future lunar real estate. Thank you. Stephen Durst is the editor of Space Age Publishing. Okay, so owning a piece of the moon, is this even legal? Is it just? We asked Franz Vanderdunk at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln, where he's a professor of space law. Now, we've talked to a guy here who claims that he owns a couple of acres on the moon. Yeah. That he bought or received his gifts. True. Uh, and and uh, he's, he's owned this since 1971. Apparently, he paid $15.99 plus some lunar tax for yeah. an acre. Can you really buy land on the moon? I guess no, not. No. Uh, I'm al- always tempted, if, if people tell me that, to offer them the same part of the moon for half the price, <laughs> just to make the point. Because what, what has happened is, is the following, that a, a smart guy back in 1980 claimed the moon in uh, California following local laws. Uh, and in, in accordance with those local laws, he actually got uh, a certificate confirming that uh, the, that he owned the moon, and then he then started to sell it. But the key point is that because of the absence of territorial sovereignty on the moon, the moon is not part of the United States, and therefore the United States laws, which determine how an individual person can obtain ownership over a piece of land, only apply to the United States and not to the moon. Yeah. So while, strictly speaking, under the United States law, the original owner and and presumably the one who sold it to the guy you've been talking to obtained property rights in accordance with that law. That law simply doesn't apply to outer space and it doesn't apply to the moon either. My goodness. Well, it sounds like he has a nice uh, $17 piece of paper, but Absolutely. N- but no lunar real estate. What, what if somebody here, I mean, we're talking about privatizing manned missions or at least the rocketry that NASA is going to use in mm-hmm. this country. And, you know, maybe one of these companies say, well, let's open up a resort on the moon, yeah. you yeah. know, uh, the, the <laughs> Crater Acres or something like that. Uh, can they do that at least? Uh, is it free for you? Can you open up a resort? Yes. I say this carefully because the main issue is that those details were not in the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, simply because at that time nobody thought that there was a serious chance something like that might happen. Uh, Because if you look strictly at the Outer Space Treaty, by defining the moon as a global commons, you say on the one hand, no one can claim territorial sovereignty. In other words, nobody can reserve a part of the land and saying, that's mine and everybody keep their hands off. On the other hand, the standard regime for a global commons is that you can go there and and use it for your own purposes and extract anything valuable. And the, the proper comparison here is the high seas, which is also a global commons. Nobody can claim part of the high seas to be part of a sovereign territory. And so nobody can reserve the fish in that sea or in that part of the high seas. But if a fisherman's vessel goes out there and catches the fish, the moment the fish is in his net, it is rightfully his. And then, of course, he can sell it and make money from it. And if you apply that same regime to the moon, it means that you cannot reserve it. But once you go there and extract minerals, the moment you extract them, they are yours. Well, Franz van der Donk, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It was my great pleasure. Franz van der Donk is a professor of space law at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. By the way, before we reached that space lawyer, our call was misdirected somehow, and we ended up talking with... Yeah, the case was Jones or something, V something... Wait, what was the question again? That's right, a spacey lawyer. Coming up, the dark side of the moon.
a new look at the Nazi past of Werner von Braun and the responsibility of the Apollo scientists who hired him. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Ten, nine, ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. When a Saturn V rocket carrying Apollo 11 lifted off for the moon in July 1969, mission control erupted in cheers, and one man, a German, had a big smile on his face. I think I need not tell you how elated all of us in NASA are now that our three astronauts are safely home. I think our rocket flight to the moon has not one, but about 300,000 fathers. It was not the work of any one man. It was really a team effort. Werner von Braun was being modest, but he was already considered to be one of history's greatest rocket engineers. But when von Braun sat in mission control that day, he was a long way from his homeland, and he undoubtedly hoped his past. German-born, von Braun had helped develop the V-2 rocket during World War II. A program that was Hitler's greatest hope as the war began to go badly for Germany. Von Braun's association with the Nazi party had long been known. What some people saw as his cavalier dismissal of his participation was even satirized by Tom Lehrer in 1965. Gather round while I sing you of Werner von Braun, a man whose allegiance is ruled by expedience. Call him a Nazi, he won't even frown. A Nazi schmatzi, says Werner von Braun. But now, von Braun's connection with the Nazi party has been newly scrutinized by Wayne Biddle. A Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, Biddle has drawn on newly released documents and spoken to former laborers from the slave camp where the V-2 rockets were made. The result is the book Dark Side of the Moon, Werner von Braun, The Third Reich, and the Space Race. Von Braun had always maintained that his interest was in going into space, not building weapons for the Reich. But Biddle says that the engineer was knowingly complicit with the horrors of the Nazi regime. Biddle doesn't just bring the rocket engineer's culpability to light, but that of the entire U.S. space program, which he says was willing to look the other way in order to bring the talented engineer to their side and win the Cold War race to put a man on the moon. Uh, There's no doubt that he was a charismatic manager. As far as his role in Germany is concerned, he was incredibly young, still in his 20s when he was given major managerial posts. It's my belief that part of this was due to his Aryan good looks, his Aryan physique. Uh, We must remember that Germany in the 1930s was convinced that a certain racial profile was uh, superior, and he fit that profile perfectly. So he was, I think, put in these accelerated managerial paths because he, he was iconic in that regard. 
He was indeed a poster child. I mean, he looked good on posters. Yes, indeed. He looked good in photographs, and they always made sure his face was prominent in photographs. The story you tell about in your book is von Braun's involvement during World War II, which casts his role in the Apollo program in a different light. What was the background here? Where did Werner von Braun come from? Well, he was a uh, member of the Junker, so-called Junker uh, aristocracy in Germany, meaning that he had a Prussian family that had ruled over landed estates for many, many generations. Uh, his father was a prominent government official, uh, both under the Kaiser during World War I and in the last uh, years of the Weimar government before uh, the Nazi party took over. So he had the right background. Uh, he had a perfect aristocratic background, yes. This is all somewhat old history now, the story of von Braun. Many people know about him. Maybe people under 40 don't know about him. Certainly my generation, uh, he was, as you say, iconic. And people even knew about his involvement in the Nazi party. So why did you reopen this case? What makes your story different? Well, I, I don't think you can so easily say that everybody knew about him. Until 1980, the records that would show the details of his involvement with the Nazi regime, especially his involvement with the use of slave labor, were classified by the uh, American military, by the U.S. Army. After 1980, the archives were opened up and historians and journalists began to take a close look at his actual involvement, verifying his Nazi party membership, verifying his SS commission. Let's look at what he did during the war. Von Braun was the rising star at Pinamunde. That was the big rocket development center on the Baltic. When the war began to go badly for Germany, Hitler began to see the A-4 rocket, which we know as the V-2, the vengeance weapon, uh, rather differently. How so? And how did Von Braun contribute to the development here? Uh, well, Hitler, uh, when he first learned about the rocket program, was very dubious. He knew uh, quite well that in order to invade countries, you need lots of young bodies and uh, simple, reliable uh, weapons. I suppose that's still the case today. Uh, so the futuristic nature of the rocket program did not impress him at all. As you just said, uh, Germany got desperate, though, uh, and uh, that's when Hitler turned in desperation to the rocket program as a so-called Wunderwaffen, wonder weapon, and uh, poured a lot of money into it. But it was way too late in the war for it to make a difference. And we know what happened. Yeah, we could touch on that briefly because these were actually not terribly effective weapons. They carried less than a ton of explosives in the nose, and they didn't have such great guidance systems. They would just make a hole in London, that sort of thing. I mean... Compared to what aircraft could do at the time, the, these weapons were not terribly good. What was the attraction? The attraction was probably psychological. Uh, in their desperation, uh, they were sold on, on at least the uh, psychological impact of the V-2, its, its utility as a terror weapon. Von Braun was very much uh, involved with personally selling the program face-to-face uh, -face with Hitler. Uh, he was always good at that. That's a skill he brought to America and, and used quite well over here, too, his salesmanship. Now, what many people may not know is that the V-2s were built largely by slave labor. And you interviewed survivors of the labor camps at Dora. How did they describe the conditions there? What was it like to build a V-2? Dante-esque is a word that I grasp for. It's difficult to imagine how horrible the circumstances were. Uh, many of these uh, men who worked as slave laborers had been French resistance fighters, at least at the beginning, the first groups that were brought in. 
They had some skills that uh, were potentially useful on a high-tech assembly line, but they were essentially dumped into an underground cave that was not uh, habitable whatsoever. No medical care, no fresh air, no clean water, no nothing. As a result, they died like flies. At least 10,000 ultimately died out of a workforce at Dora of some 60,000. The number could easily be uh, multiples of that. Von Braun knew about this? Of course he did. And he visited Dora? Yes, many times. So what was the deal? Was he just doing this because he had no choice and he was just a guy that loved rockets or did he buy into the necessity of slave labor to build these things? Well, we don't know uh, because he never said anything about it, never wrote about it. He maintained uh, almost perfect silence about it for the rest of his life. One has to assume, though, it is fair to say that he could not have been involved with the program as long as he was, essentially from 1933 until 1945, without knowing exactly what it was about and having deep commitment to the Nazi regime. At least it's impossible for me to imagine otherwise. I'm speaking with Wayne Biddle, author of the new book about Werner von Braun, Dark Side of the Moon. Wayne, he claimed in post-war years that he was a space travel enthusiast. He aimed for the stars, after all. And he was doing that during his time in Germany. But you say there was much more to that. He was really an ideologue who bought into the Nazi philosophy. I believe so, yes. And I think that that was the dreamer of space, uh, Columbus of space persona was a confection, largely, uh, a cover story that the American military uh, and others were complicit in helping him construct. Certainly, he, he would have been in very serious legal trouble, given the Nuremberg Code, if his involvement with slave labor had been widely known. But he was a Nazi Party member uh, starting in 1937, and he had been associated with the SS since 1933. He received uh, honorary, so-called honorary uh, commissions as an officer uh, in later years. How did von Braun find his way to the U.S. space program? I, I believe he made a point of surrendering to the Americans and not the Russians at the end of the war. He and, and his colleagues were terrified of surrendering to the Red Army and thought that the Americans would be a much more congenial uh, host, uh, which they certainly were. So, yes, they engineered their own surrender, so to speak, down in the Bavarian Alps. So, yes, they uh, turned themselves over to the American Army, which immediately uh, uh, identified them as being a valuable technologist and, in pretty short order, found themselves down in the southwestern part of the United States, where they were put to the task of launching the very rockets that they had been stopped from launching with great loss of, of allied life. Yeah, well, in fact, uh, there were trainloads of uh, V-2 parts, right, that were taken from Pinamunda and sent to the United States. Yes. In advance of the Red Army, uh, the Americans tried to get as much hardware away from the V-2 assembly site as they could. It did amount to train loads. I have photographs of those train loads in my book. So very shortly after the war, within, within years or less, actually, he, he was launching V-2s from New Mexico or wherever in the U.S. and developing new rockets. Now, I think it would be naive to say that our government here, the United States government, didn't know about his involvement with the Nazi party. But they, you could also argue, look, the war was over. I mean, was hiring von Braun somehow criminal? I, I can only, as an, as an historian, go back to the time, those post-war years, when the Allied governments had decided to bring to courts of law, uh, under the Nuremberg Code, 
leaders of, of the Nazi regime. Albert Speer is probably the closest analog, the, the armaments minister under Hitler, is probably the, the closest analog to von Braun in a way. And Albert Speer, of course, uh, was given 20 years at Spandau Prison for his involvement. There is no doubt at all that had von Braun lived longer, he would have had to confront on a legal basis his involvement with slave labor. But Speer was an architect and, and maybe not so useful in the Cold War from the standpoint of, uh, you know, beating the Russians uh, with rocketry. I mean, you know, von Braun had definite utility in the Cold War. Of course he did, yes. And that utilitarian, strictly utilitarian decision was behind his thriving in the United States. I can recall in the 1950s, it was almost a joke, you know, whether our German scientists were better than their German scientists. Mm. It was what was being done at the time. The Russians were doing the same thing. But it's interesting to recall that the Russians sent their Germans back when they were finished with them, so to speak. Uh, By the early 1950s, uh, the Soviets were sending uh, their German scientists back to Germany. To what extent should von Braun or other scientists with the U.S. space program be held accountable for the misuse of their expertise? Or maybe misuse of the expertise isn't the right term, but the fact that we took people who, under very slightly different circumstances, were being tried for war crimes, and we put them in charge of our our rocket program. Uh, That's a cultural issue uh, that's, again, I think, at the heart of my reasons for uh, looking at this story. The responsibility The moral responsibility of scientists and engineers for their work is a question that keeps turning up again and again in a society like ours. And I I don't think as a culture we've dealt with it very well. It's, It's always been easy, it seems, for scientists to escape blame for what they do. They're eager to have praise, but uh, if it's a matter of blame, that's something that they, uh, many of them seem to want to slip away from. Wayne, I believe you have correspondence from Carl Sagan about his view of von Braun's efforts. Maybe you could tell us a little bit of what he said. Yes, uh, Carl Sagan wrote a letter to me about von Braun before he died. I think it's ironic that Carl Sagan, in many ways, inherited the mantle of von Braun as an inspirational spokesperson for exploring the universe. As individuals, they couldn't have had less in common, but in many ways it was Carl who became that inspirational voice. But here's some of what he said. The key event that convinced me personally that spaceflight would happen in my generation was the 1948 two-stage launch of a WAC Corporal missile aboard a Von Braun-designed V-2, which reached an altitude of about 250 miles. I found many things deeply disturbing about his career, his willingness to work for the Wehrmacht and the SS and to use slave labor in the production of V-2s. One of the lessons I have learned from his career is the responsibility of the scientist or engineer to hold back and even, if necessary, to refuse to participate in technological developments, no matter how sweet, when the auspices or objectives are sufficiently sinister. Well, finally, Wayne, how do we judge a man then? I mean, by his good deeds or his darker motivations, does success trump all else? For me, the answer is no. Wayne Biddle, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for your interest. Wayne Biddle won the Pulitzer Prize reporting for the New York Times on the Star Wars Anti-Missile Project. He's now the author of Dark Side of the Moon, Werner von Braun, The Third Reich, and The Space Race. And that's it for our show. 
Our thanks to Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Sandra Chung, and Jay Weiler for their help with the program. Also the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute. We're looking for life elsewhere in the solar system. Depends on use of technology that will take us into space. You've been listening to Space Race 2.0. If you just can't get enough of our program, please visit our archives at radio.seti.org. And if you're really keen, become a member of our Are We Alone fan club on Facebook or Spacebook. One of those books. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.